Good morning, Cross Connection Church. Welcome to Church Online. 12 years ago, almost to the week, we were blessed here at Cross Connection Church to host a a fascinating guest speaker. At that time, at the end of August 2010, we were just about to begin a 15-week class here at the church called the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, or simply just called Perspectives. Perspectives is basically a graduate level class on Christian missions. Our church had chosen to host the class and nearly like a hundred people from the church here were enrolled and ready to attend and other people from other churches in the area. And Perspectives is an eye-opening journey through the scriptures, through the Bible, and looking at the Bible and looking at church history, considering the work of Christian missions throughout the scripture, throughout church history, and then bringing it forward, not just in church history, but to our day, and considering the remaining task that we as followers of Christ have in finishing the mission that Jesus gave to us and what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christians have been doing that since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 all the way through the last 2,000 years. And the Bible has much to say about that. Church history gives us all kinds of insight into that. So the perspectives course was all about that. And the class is meant to open your eyes and to change your perspective to change your perspective about what God's mission is in the world, but not just about what God's mission is in the world. It's to change your perspective to help you to see how you, as a child of God, are to be involved in his mission in the world. God has called you and I to be a part of that mission. Perspectives follows a pretty interesting format. Each week of the 15 weeks, a different speaker comes in to teach. And most of those speakers, you know, we as the host church, we had to work on trying to get the different speakers to come. And they gave us a list of, you know, possible speakers for each topic and everything. But every single speaker is basically an expert in their field of study. And the speaker that we had selected to come and open the class, scheduled for the very first class, he was not just an expert on one topic, but an expert on so many different topics about the Christian faith and especially about missions. He was not just kind of an academic seminary kind of guy. He was a practitioner of the things that he was going to teach. He was not on the theoretical side, but on the experimental side. He had actually been out in the field working out mission sort of things. And so he was an expert And he came to the church here at Cross Connection a few days before the class started so that he could be a guest speaker at our church. His name was Don Richardson. Now, Don passed away a few years ago. And when he was here, he was about 75 years old, and he spoke on the subject of what he called cultural compasses. Now, according to Don, cultural compasses are artifacts within cultures that point people, like a compass, they point people to God. And Don would tell you if you had had a chance to sit down with him for a meal, which I did a couple of times while he was here, and if you were able to sit down and visit with him, he would have told you that these cultural compasses 
are given to every culture in the world. So every place that you can think of in the world, all the peoples with specific languages and customs and cultures in every single place, God has intentionally built into those individuals and into their culture and sometimes even into their language, God has built these cultural compasses into them. In fact, Don would have pointed you to a passage of scripture to support his view found in a 3,000 year old book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. Song, uh, Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 at verse 10, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. So what is the purpose for men? I've seen it. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he also has put eternity in their hearts. God has given us a purpose and a task, and he has placed into every human being, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has put eternity in their hearts. God has given us this understanding of these things. He has placed into hearts and cultures of man compasses that are directed to him, to God. God has designed us in such a way that there are certain things hardwired into us, a moral law hardwired into us, but also an inclination toward love, an inclination towards eternal life, living forever, all these sorts of things. And God has hardwired that into us and he has built into our hearts and into the cultures of man compasses that point and direct individuals to him. And what we have here today before us in Deuteronomy chapter 19, which is where, where we're going to be. So if you want to open up a Bible or open up the Bible app on your phone or your iPad or whatever it is, open to Deuteronomy chapter 19. But what we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is, I believe, one such cultural compass for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, that was directing them in the right direction toward the Messiah. So if you would look at the text with me, Deuteronomy chapter 19, the opening verses say this, when the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, so they're getting ready to come into the promised land, they're going to, using the word in here, dispossess the inhabitants of that land. When you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, note this, verse 2, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. What we have here is something we've looked at already in Deuteronomy, as I'll talk about in just a moment, having to do with places for manslayers, cities of refuge. The children of Israel, when they came into the promised land, they were, as we've talked about many times over the last several weeks, they were to govern themselves according to God's law, the book of Deuteronomy. There, was to, there wasn't going to be an active law enforcement. There was no police officer. So if a crime was committed, it was in the hands of the people to deal with the prosecution of that crime and of that criminal. And in a number of instances, capital punishment could be the penalty for the crime, especially if the case was homicide. Homicide is an unlawful killing of a person. So if there was the unlawful killing of a person, the person ends up dead, there needs to be a way to deal with the person who was involved in the death. And I'm sure that you know that homicide is not always intentionally premeditated murder, or what we would call murder in the first degree. 
sometimes the homicide or this unlawful death, it comes about unintentionally. It's not premeditated. And in those circumstances, both 3,000 years ago, 34,000 years ago and today, we would refer to that situation as manslaughter. Manslaughter is the unlawful killing of a human being, but without malice or a forethought. It's not, it's not something that you premeditated that you were going to do this, but it, it happened. It's unfortunate, it's terrible, it's unlawful, it's not the way that things should be, but it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't intentional. So, what we have here in Deuteronomy 19 is direction from Moses and ultimately from God on how the children of Israel were to deal with the capital crime of homicide when homicide was determined, when the homicide was determined to be manslaughter. And as I have pointed out previously in our studies in Deuteronomy, many of God's laws were given to Israel and, it, and they were revolutionary reforms to the contemporary customs of that time and of that place. You see, in the ancient Near East, that's where Israel was 3,400 years ago when they were getting ready to go into Promised Land. In the ancient Near East, at, at the time of Moses, if a death occurred due to the direct actions or inactions of an individual, that individual, that killer, would typically be put to death. And they would typically be put to death by a relative of the deceased person. So imagine the scenario, you, God forbid, you find that you have killed somebody and that individual that you have killed, their near of kin, their close relative, some guy who is a relative of that person becomes what the Bible calls the avenger of blood. Sounds like something you'd see on a Marvel movie. So this avenger of blood, who's the relative of the person who died, it's now that person's job to, in effect, hunt you down and kill you. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So the avenger of blood is going to come and to avenge the death of the person who had died upon the person who had killed them. And often it didn't matter or there was not time enough or opportunity to determine whether or not the death occurred intentionally or unintentionally, whether or not it was premeditated murder or if it was manslaughter. So if you happened to be directly involved in the death of another person, then it was quite likely that you would be put to death. And that would probably happen rather quickly by the relative of the deceased person, again, called the avenger of blood. But for God's people, it was to be, as Moses is telling them here in this passage, and we've already seen some stuff about this previously in Deuteronomy, but as he's telling them in this passage, it is to be different. There within Israel, there were to be cities of refuge for the one who is guilty of manslaughter. Look at what we read going on in verse 4, Deuteronomy 19, verse 4. And this is the case of the manslayer, the one who has committed manslaughter, who flees there to one of the cities of refuge, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor, here's the key, unintentionally not having hated him in the past. So there's no premeditation. He didn't lie and wait to shed blood. He wasn't waiting for him. There's no malice or first degree murder here. It's just unintentional manslaughter. As when a man, he gives an example here in verse five, as when a man goes out to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings with the stroke of an axe to cut down the tree, and the head of the axe slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so that he dies. So then the man who had the axe and accidentally killed the guy with the axe head, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, there's the avenger, while he is 
Anger is hot. Pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him. Though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated the victim in times past. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So these are the cities of refuge that are be, to be set aside in the children of Israel's land. In God's economy, there were limitations within his law, especially as it related to capital punishment. And there were provisions if homicide was determined to be unintentional. Going on, he says in verse 8, Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised you to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways, all his ways, always, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. So that's the word of the cities of refuge. If there is a homicide, someone dies at the hands of another, it needs to be determined by the judges before the avenger of blood can come and bring capital punishment on the supposed murderer. It needs to go through a process of determining whether or not it was premeditated or was it manslaughter. If it's determined that it's manslaughter, then we have this provision, which we find in other places in the Pentateuch, where the manslayer can stay in the city of refuge and stay alive and not be subject to death at the hand of the avenger of blood. But if it is determined, as we see in those last verses, verses 11 and 12, that the, the person, the homicide happened by premeditation, there was hate involved, the person did lie and wait to shed blood, then that person is going to be given over to the avenger of blood to bring about justice. Now, if you were with us two years ago in August of 2020, then this may be somewhat familiar to you because back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we saw a previous reference to the cities of refuge as there were already established three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River. So the nation of Israel is going to be divided by a river still, or was for a long time. Now on the east side of the Jordan River, you have the, the country of Jordan. On the west side of the Jordan River, you have the country of Israel. But in the time of Moses, when they came into the Promised Land, they had territory on the east side of the Jordan River where there were two and a half tribes of Israel. And then there was the larger territory on the west side of the Jordan River. So they were to have three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River. Those have already been established. You can read about that in the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then you have three more cities on the, the east or the west side of the Jordan River that as they enter into the land. And if, we're told in this passage, the land was to increase and the nation grew, then God says, then you're going to need to make more cities of refuge in the future. And these cities were supposed to be spaced throughout the land of Israel such that they were no more than a single day's journey for the one that needed to flee there. Because if you were, like they were talking about in this passage, you're out in the woods, you're cutting down a tree, and the, the head of the axe slips and it kills your partner who's been helping you, there you are, you're, you're stuck. You're in this situation and you know as soon as this is found out that this person has died, then... His brother or his father is going to come after me as the avenger of blood. And now you need to get to a city of refuge. 
or you're going to die. You're going to die rather quickly because they're going to hunt you down. There's going to be a manhunt. So you would flee to a city of refuge. And these cities would be three on the east side of the Jordan River, three on the west side of the Jordan River, always within one day's journey. And the roads to these cities were to be kept prepared. We see that here in this passage. And not only were they kept prepared, but there were markers pointing to refuge, to go to the cities of refuge. And the cities were provisioned and they were kept by the Levites, the priestly tribe. One of the jobs of the priests, the Levites, and the land of Israel was to take care of the cities of refuge. Kind of a beautiful picture going on there. Now, when you really look into this provision of six cities of refuge and then the potential for more cities of refuge if the nation was to increase, there is a substantial outlay of resources in Israel that were to be committed to these cities. When you think about the taxation of the people of Israel 3,400 years ago when they came into the Promised Land, it was relatively low and most of it was geared towards the work of the tabernacle. So they would be giving to the work of the tabernacle or they would be giving for the welfare of the poor. But one of the things they gave a lot to was the finances, the provisions, the resources to make sure that roads were made and cut and kept ready to the city of refuge, that the cities of refuge were taken care of and provisioned and everything was there. There were signs. This was all kept up and the people were financially responsible to put together these resources for this. So there's a substantial outlay of resources for these cities of refuge. They clearly were an important big deal for God and for his people. But from what we can tell in studying the Old Testament scriptures, we do not see much of anything to indicate how often these cities were actually used by manslayers. That's not to say that they were not used, but there is not that I can think of in the Old Testament a story where someone actually fled because of manslaughter to one of the cities of refuge. So what is the purpose of this rather costly provision in the land of Israel? Well, I want to suggest to you aside from the practical considerations for someone potentially guilty of manslaughter, that these cities, these cities of refuge that had to be provisioned by the people and their taxes went to provide for all this sort of stuff and taking care of these cities were a cultural compass directing the culture, the people of Israel to God, just like Don Richardson talked about years ago when he came here. And one of the interesting things that you can discover if you ever read uh, one of Don Richardson's books called Eternity in Their Hearts, which I highly recommend if you are a reader and you're looking for something to read as we come into the fall, you might want to look at Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. I'm actually going to read a portion from it in just a few minutes. But what you find is that there are other culture groups, other people groups that had very similar things to these cities of refuge and that this was not entirely unique to Hebrew culture. Again, this is a cultural compass that God has put into the hearts and minds of people and cultures for the purpose of directing them to the Lord. As I shared a couple of years ago, when we looked at the cities of refuge back in Deuteronomy chapter four, the provision of these cities, it in some sense is to teach us that God goes to great lengths to provide mercy to the guilty. The person who would go and live in the city of refuge was guilty of, you know, effectively murder. It wasn't murder in the first degree, it was manslaughter. They were guilty of homicide. And yet God goes to great lengths to provide mercy to the guilty. And he expected great care and expense be apportioned 
to provide refuge and mercy to the guilty. That's an awesome thing. So not only is God concerned about those who are guilty and wants to deal with them mercifully, but he also wants his people to deal with guilty people mercifully and to be just. This is a just way to deal with this. And so he did this all to show his mercy, to show his grace, but he also did this, as I've been sharing with you, cultural compasses. He did this to direct people to him. The cities of refuge were a cultural compass. King David, considered one of the great kings of Israel and the psalmist, the great psalmist of Israel, he recognizes that this idea of refuge in the city of refuge points to God and he writes about it in some of his Psalms. For example, we read this in Psalm 91 verse 1. I will say of the Lord, he is my, here's the word, refuge, my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. David, when he writes these words about 400 years after Moses here in Psalm 91, he is clearly pulling out in this imagery, in this picture, the idea of the city of refuge, that you can flee there and you can find refuge as that is your dwelling place. And as you are there, if you're guilty of manslaughter and there you are in the city of refuge, you have refuge in that place as your dwelling place from the evil that could befall you as long as you are in that place. And then Later, it becomes more clear when you realize that each of us are ultimately guilty of unintentional homicide. This idea of the city of refuge being a cultural compass pointing to God, it becomes really clear that this is a cultural compass when I begin to realize, when I open the pages of scripture, that I am guilty. Though it happened unintentionally, there was no premeditation, I unwittingly am guilty of homicide. Unintentionally and unaware, I and you, we have acted in such a way that we have caused someone to die. Jesus, because of my sin, because of your sin, he died upon Calvary's cross. And we have no hope but to flee for refuge from the coming wrath of his avenger of blood, his father. So, Jesus' father is the avenger of blood. His wrath will come upon us unless we flee for refuge. Well, where do we flee for refuge? There is no place like Bezer or Hebron where we can flee to a city of refuge. Where do we go to? Well, the New Testament book of Hebrews says this in chapter 6, verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable, immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong comfort, consolation, who have, note this, fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. As I said, we don't know, can't really know how often manslayers fled to the cities of refuge in ancient Israel, but we do know that 
the cities of refuge pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ and to our need for refuge in him. Israel's cities of refuge were markers posted to direct us to Christ. And the cities of refuge were not only markers given to direct Israel and us to Christ. Paul in the book of Galatians, he says it's not just the city as a refuge. He says the law, all of the law was given to do the same. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. Therefore the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, or a signpost to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So the children of Israel were given the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all the other 603 commandments that they are set to observe. All those things were given to them to direct them to Jesus, to show them their need for Jesus. It's a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring them to Christ so that they would be justified by faith, because you cannot be justified by the law. So the cities of refuge, they were a cultural compass pointing people to their need for refuge in Christ. The law was a cultural compass pointing the people to Christ and their need for Christ. And that's not all. There are many other things in Israel's history and in their culture that point forward to Christ. They are all God-given cultural compasses to direct them to God and their need for God. Think of the manna that the children of Israel ate when they were in the wilderness. The New Testament tells us that that was a pointer pointing to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Moses gave you bread to eat in the wilderness. I am the bread that you truly need for life. The tree, there's a kind of interesting story. At the end of Exodus chapter 15, when the children of Israel have just crossed over the Red Sea and they've come into the, the wilderness, they come to an area where they're really thirsty. They're in the desert and they find some water, but it is bitter. The water is not sweet to drink. They can't drink it. But then God tells Moses to cast a tree or a branch of a tree into the waters. And this tree makes the waters drinkable, makes the waters sweet. So the tree that made the bitter water sweet, that is a cultural compass that points to Jesus. Think about the spotless lamb of the book of Leviticus, where we read about the offerings of Israel. All of those offerings of Israel in the book of Leviticus, the whole point is to direct to Jesus, but especially the spotless lamb for the sin offering is a cultural compass pointing to Jesus. When Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, it says that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one. Follow him. So John is pointing back to the Levitical priesthood system of sacrifice for sin offerings. He's saying, Remember all those lambs, those sheep that we offered as sacrifices, they were pure and spotless. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one. Follow him. So all of these things are cultural compasses. I think of a, another one that comes to my mind, one of my favorites. In John's gospel, chapter 3, a man comes to Jesus by night, a religious leader named Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus with a question. And Jesus and him are going back and forth. And Jesus explains to this man that this religious man who followed the law and followed the traditions of Israel, he says, listen, you need to be born again or you're not going to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so Nicodemus, this religious man, he wants to understand this. He genuinely is trying to figure this out. Like, what do you mean I'm born again? I don't, I don't get it. Explain to me how the new birth comes. And Jesus describes 
the new birth as coming not by an action of our bodies, not by some physical thing that we do, but by our faith. And he does this by pointing back to a rather obscure event in Israel's wilderness wanderings from the book of Numbers. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So come back here for just a moment. Pause right there. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, there's this crazy story about the children of Israel. They're in the wilderness. They are murmuring and complaining, which they were really good at. You probably never do that. But they're murmuring and complaining against God. And these, as a judgment or as a consequence of their sin, these venomous snakes start to come into the camp and bite them. Fiery serpents bite them. And people are dying because of these venomous snakes. So then the people cry out to Moses and they say, you got to rescue us from this snake. And he calls out to God and God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole in the midst of the camp. And whoever is bitten by the snake, if they will look at it, they will be saved. What on earth is this about? It's a cultural compass. So back to John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up, where? On the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the most famous verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21, somewhere thereabouts. That weird situation with the children of Israel in the wilderness when people were getting bitten by the snake and dying. All they had to do was to trust in the snake, lift it up, the bronze snake lifted up on the pole, and then they would be healed. Why? Well, it was faith, their trust that brought life. And Jesus says, how does the new birth come? Well, that old thing that happened, back during the time of Moses was a cultural compass pointing forward to Jesus because the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be lifted up on the cross. And there's some beautiful typological pictures happening in that whole story, which I'd love to get into. It's a study for another time. and I don't have enough time here, but basically bronze is a symbol of judgment in the scriptures and the serpent, the one who introduced sin in Genesis chapter three is an image of sin. So you have judgment upon sin on this pole or on this tree on the cross. Jesus, when he is lifted up, judgment upon sin on the cross, our trust in him, our faith in him, that is what brings salvation. So these are all cultural compasses and they were given to the children of Israel to direct them to Jesus. The cities of refuge here in Deuteronomy chapter 19 are cultural compasses to point to Jesus. But that begs the question, what about non-Jewish peoples? What about other cultures? Are there cultural compasses for other people groups? Well, while ministering to the Greek-speaking Gentiles in the region of Galatia, in the city of Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul writes these words, or said these words. Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 14. When Paul, I'm sorry, when the Apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, this is kind of a crazy story going on there. They healed a guy in Lystra and all the people of the city, when they saw this healing, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods that came down to them. So when the Apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, 
they tore their clothes and they ran among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you worshiping us? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, this paganism, and turn to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Note this, verse 17, this is awesome. Nevertheless, he, God, did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Notice that. He did not leave himself without witness, verse 17. God is not as hidden as we sometimes assume. He has, I believe, left his fingerprints throughout creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork, says Psalm 19, verse 1. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even God's eternal power and Godhead, says Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We see God's imprint in creation. We see his handiwork in the design of, look up in the stars, astronomy, or look down through the microscope, biology, or chemistry and physics. We see God's handiwork in these things, the intricate nature of design. We understand his wisdom and his power and his understanding when we encounter conscience and consciousness, just the fact that we know things, that we know that we know things, and that we know certain things are good and certain things are bad and certain things are beautiful and certain things are not and certain things are true and certain things are false. The fact that we know all this stuff, it points back to God. It is His fingerprints left upon creation and conscience and consciousness in so many different ways. And we are directed to Him at the signposts that He has woven into the fabric of every human culture. He did not leave himself without witness. Romans chapter 1 says in verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. God is knowable and has made himself known and will be found by those that will seek him. This is so important and so good. God is knowable. I want you to recognize, you know, some people they, they believe that there might be a God, but he's way out in the edge of the universe somewhere and I just can never reach to him and I can't know him. That is not what the Bible reveals. God is knowable. He has revealed himself. He has made himself known. That's apocalyptus. He is apocalypse. He has shown himself, made himself known, and he will be found by those who seek for him. A favorite passage for many people is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, where we read these words, beginning at verse 11, but too many people stop at verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations from, and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Now, yes, this is being spoken to the exiles of Israel that were going into captivity in Babylon, but I do believe in very much the same way. This applies to every lost soul. God will be found as we seek for him with all of our hearts. In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul was in the great city of Athens, he was given an opportunity to speak among the Greek smart guys, the intelligentsia, on a place called Mars Hill. The city of Athens was 
given to all manner of pagan idolatry. The most dominant feature of the city of Athens, both then and now, is this giant rock outcropping called the Acropolis, upon which are massive temples to Athena and Nike and Pan and Apollo and other deities there in Greek culture. Throughout the ancient city of Athens, there were temples to Zeus and Aphrodite and Ares and dozens of lesser known deities from Greece and from Rome and from Egypt and from other places all throughout the known world of that time. And the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, he toured the city and he walks around the city of Athens and he beholds all these different places that they worshiped. And, and they worshiped every possible thing you could imagine and they had all kinds of different temples and altars to these gods. And then he is given an opportunity, Acts 17 tells us, to go and speak with the wise guys in the city on Mars Hill, just below the Acropolis. I've been there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. In fact, we're taking a group of people there next year as we do our Holy Land tour cruise next year. We're going to be there starting in Athens. We'll go to the Acropolis. We'll go to Mars Hill. But in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to read a large section because it's such a a powerful passage of scripture. This is what we see with Paul in Acts chapter 17. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. You see this temple, or not just this temple, these altars throughout the city to the unknown Theos, God, he says, these things, they point to God. They, they were cultural compasses. They were in the culture of Athens, these altars to the unknown Theos. He says, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. You don't know him, but I want to introduce you to him. God, Theos, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands like that up on the hill, the, the Acropolis, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Notice this, verse seven, so that... He has made them. He's constructed these peoples so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also one of your own poets have said, you have your own philosophers and poets. They have cultural compasses for we also are his offspring. So an Athenian poet has know, knows this is written. Therefore, verse 29, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by the art of a man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, turn to him from their idols, from their foolishness, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." I know I'm going long today, but there's so much good stuff here that we need to consider. What did Paul do right there in Athens? Well, like a good anthropologist, he looked for the cultural compasses in Athens so that he might direct people to the one true God. God is knowable and he has made himself known and he will be found by those that seek for him. 
he has placed into the hearts of cultures, the hearts of individual people, compasses that direct us to him. He gave the Hebrews compasses to point them to him. The, the lamb for the sin offering, the bronze serpent, the cities of refuge. He left pointers for the Gentiles of Lystra, the wise guys in Athens. And if you pick up Don Richardson's book, another book, uh, first one I mentioned was uh, the book Eternity in Their Hearts, next one is Peace Child, then you will see the beautiful way that God revealed himself through a phenomenal cultural compass to a group of people, a tribal people in New Guinea called the Sawi people. In 1962, Don Richardson and his wife Carol and their newborn son Stephen, they only had one child at the time, they went as missionaries to New Guinea to a truly headhunting, cannibalistic tribal group called the Sawi people. And Don spent months learning the Sawi people's language and learning their culture and all this so that he could introduce them to Jesus. And eventually when he became fluent enough to be able to speak their language, he began sharing the gospel with them. But soon he encountered a problem. You see, as he tells it in Peace Child and also in Eternity in Their Hearts, this people group, the Sawi people, they highly valued treachery. Remember, they are headhunters and they're cannibals and they value treachery, turning on someone who you've kind of brought them in close. And when Don shared the story with them about Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, they cheered and they valued Judas as the hero of the story. So Don had this huge problem. How do you share the gospel of Christ with people who think that Jesus is the dupe and Judas is the hero? That's like nearly impossible. What do you do? And it wasn't until Don, he shared with us when he shared here 12 years ago, he shares in his books as well. Don and his family were getting ready to leave the Sawi people because there was tribal warfare among the people and it had become dangerous for them to live there. And the people did not want Don and his wife to leave. Don told the people that you must find a way to bring peace or my wife and I and our child, we're going to have to leave. Now his wife was a nurse and she was saving dozens of people in, um, in and among the Sawi people from all kinds of things, malaria and dysentery and all kinds of things. They did not want them to leave. So they said, well, if, if you can't find a way for peace, then we are going to have to leave. And it was then that they told Don about this long-held custom in their culture around what was called a peace child. And I want to read from his book. This is from chapter three of Eternity in Their Hearts. Don writes this in his book, praying for special help from God, we eventually found that the Sawi had a unique way of making peace and forestalling outbreaks of treachery. If a Sawi father offered his son to another group as a peace child. Not only were past grievances thereby settled, but also future instances of treachery were prevented, but only as long as the peace child remained alive. So they're not offering a human sacrifice. Our ready-made key of communication then was the presentation of Jesus Christ to the Sawi as the ultimate peace child using Isaiah chapter 9-6 and John 3-16, Romans 5-10, Hebrews 7-25 as the primary scriptural correspondence of the peace child analogy. By this means, the meaning of the gospel did break through among the Sawi. Once they realized that the one Judas betrayed was the peace child, they no longer viewed Judas as the hero. For to betray a peace child was to the Sawi the worst possible crime. Since those days, approximately two-thirds of the Sawi people have, as they say, this is beautiful, laid their hands by faith upon God's peace child, Jesus Christ. 
alluding to their former requirement that recipients of a peace child lay their hands individually upon the given son and say, we receive this child as a basis for peace. We receive this child as a basis for peace. There among the Sawi people was this beautiful cultural compass that pointed a tribal group that had never heard the gospel, had never before uh, Don and Carol and their son Stephen got there, never had even seen white people before. And Don is trying to share the gospel with this people and, and finally he finds a way. They had within their culture this custom of peace child. If two groups were warring, if two tribes were fighting, the only way to bring a settled peace was that one man from one tribe would have to take one of his sons, a peace child, and give it to a man from the other tribe as a peace child, and that child would be raised as the adopted child of that other group. And as long as that child was alive, there was peace. Those are cultural compasses. Littered throughout culture, littered throughout scripture, and I would suggest to you, there are cultural compasses in our culture today. But it begs the question, what kind of cultural compasses in our day? Well, Honestly, these, these cultural compasses are everywhere. We just have to look. We, as Christians, have to be good biblical anthropologists who are able to look at culture through the lens of Scripture and see how the connections are made between the story of the Scripture and the stories that we tell ourselves within our culture. You are a missionary. If you're a Christian, you are called to be a part of God's mission, and you need to look for these cultural compasses. And they are everywhere. They're in our culture. And not just because our culture has a Judeo-Christian background. Our culture, think about this, our culture highly values love. Love is the greatest thing, we're told, in our culture. Most important virtue, most important value. Why do we think this? Why is it such an important thing? I would suggest to you because the, the cultural impulse comes from God who made us. His very nature is love. God is love, says the scriptures in 1 John. So by placing in us a deep desire and longing and yearning for love, I believe that an honest search for love will guide us ultimately in the direction of God. We want a love that is genuine and pure, compassionate, sacrificial, not selfish. Every other earthly form of love will leave you wanting. It will not satisfy the deep longing that we have. Only the love of God is genuine and pure and compassionate and sacrificial and not self-seeking. That's just one of hundreds, I think, of markers that are littered throughout our culture. I was thinking about this message this week, and then I heard a guy talking about a cultural compass. Had nothing to do with what I'm looking at, but he brought up the blockbuster summer, you know, summer of 2012 film, Marvel's The Avengers. And what is the storyline of The Avengers? Well, the storyline is fascinating. It's kind of like boiling it down to its rudest form. A supernatural Satan-type being engages in a war in the heavens, rebelling against the gods. And then he comes down to earth where he desires to be worshipped by everyone. And this Satan-type being that desires to be worshipped by all people on the earth, he has the power to possess individuals' hearts and minds and get them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, to do his bidding. And then he turns them against one another to fight with each other because he cannot defeat them by himself. Of course, the, the figure I'm talking about is Loki. And I don't know if you noticed, but that sounds like a pretty significant cultural compass that points back to the storyline of the Bible. Think about it. 
the dozens of superhero-esque movies that we entertain ourselves with. The biggest blockbusters in our culture for the last 20 years have been these crazy superhero movies. Consider the, the manifold times that good fights evil and evil nearly triumphs even to the point of the superhero being defeated to the point of death only to resurrect and to ultimately defeat the villain. Sound like a cultural compass? Consider the, the deep inclinations in our culture towards liberty and justice and virtue and morality and enlightenment and eternal life. Where does all of this come from? He did not leave himself without witness. God, who made the world and everything in it, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, where they live, when they live, so that they should seek for the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not actually far from us. I highlight all of this today to remind you that God has called you to seek for seekers. When we find the Lord or are found by him, we ought then to become seekers of the lost. The Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 19 says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that is his mission, and that certainly ought to be my mission if I'm a follower of Jesus. And if you make that your mission to seek for seekers, you will not have to look very far. They are everywhere. They are at your work. They are on the school campus you, you go to. They are in your neighborhood. They might even be within your own family. And when we look for these cultural compasses, we are engaged in kind of a biblical anthropological study of culture, recognizing that God has placed in every person eternity in their hearts. We need to look for these things to find the on-ramps for the gospel. And then we need to seek to share the good news with others. That is our calling. The good news the gospel. There is a superhero. There is one who lays his life down for others, who gives genuine, merciful, compassionate, non-self-seeking, sacrificial love. There is one who gives refuge. There is a redeemer who is just and good and beautiful and true, who gives liberty and eternal life. He is the peace child. His name is Jesus. Father God, I, I thank you so much for this passage in Deuteronomy that speaks about these cities of refuge. I thank you so much that you have made provision for us to find refuge and to find your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see in our culture the compasses that point people to you so that we can direct them to you through the gospel. Lord, help us to make those connections. Help us to have the boldness to share the good news of the gospel with those people. There are so many seekers. And Lord, you are a seeker of seekers. And so help us to be a seeker of seekers as well, seeking those who are lost because we once were lost and now we've been found by you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you for your word for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.